Uh, how sweet the sound of saving grace. Amen. On a weekend that we remember those who have given the ultimate sacrifice so that we can come together and gather and worship and, and sing the gospel to each other, it's ultimately even more significant that we honor not just those who have made it possible for us to be here right now here in America, but ultimately the, the one Savior who paid the ultimate sacrifice and gave us grace upon grace upon grace. And so that's what our goal today is as we look back into Exodus. Go ahead and open up Exodus to chapter 9. So we're all ready to chapter 9. may not take us 40 years to get through this. So Exodus chapter 9, we are in the midst, right in the middle, smack in the middle of the plagues. We're going to be taking a look at plague number 5 and plague number 6 today. This is the plague where we have the death of the livestock and the boils break out. Fun stuff, fun stuff. And so let's review a little uh, with the, the themes that we've seen already developing during these plagues. First of all, this is a main theme throughout Exodus God's plan of redemption definitely includes destroying his enemies and destroying our strongholds, the, the things that enslave us. Here we see God is showing his sovereignty also over Egypt, over the Egyptian gods, over Pharaoh, and also even over creation. We see the plagues are gradually getting worse, and we see Pharaoh's heart is also getting harder. And ultimately we see this as God foreshadowing a greater redemption, a greater judgment, a greater victory over his enemies, a greater redeemer in Christ, and a greater exodus that is to come. And so today, as we walk through the fifth plague, a lot of these themes are going to come out again. And when we get to the sixth plague, there's a new theme that gets introduced. We, up to this point, we've seen Pharaoh's heart hard and getting harder. And the language up until this point has been somewhat ambiguous as to who is hardening Pharaoh's heart. But after the sixth plague, Moses makes it very clear that this is the Lord now that is hardening Pharaoh's heart. And so I want us to wrestle with that today. So let's pray one more time before we dive into this text. God, this is a challenging text. And so we plead with you that your spirit would help us to understand, help us to understand your ways and help us to trust in your ways. I pray that you would soften our hearts, that you would remove strongholds, that you would take away our pride, our callousness at times, our apathy, Take away our, our self-ambition and help, help our hearts believe, help our hearts to obey, and help our hearts to rejoice in you. In Jesus' name, amen. So pick up with me in chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews. Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall 
with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of, the is of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And the Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. All right, we're going to stop there. We'll get to the, the next plague in a little bit. But this, this plague, this fifth plague, is the second plague in the second triad. Okay, so we talked about seeing these patterns based on how the plagues are being announced. And so going with that pattern, we see in this second plague of the third triad, God tells Moses to go into Pharaoh's chambers to confront him. Now Moses, more than likely through Aaron, or declares, okay, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. Again, this is God reminding Pharaoh over and over, I am their God, they are my people, let them go so that they can serve me, so that they can worship me. Now verse 2 is unique to this plague. Look back at verse 2. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them. And so God is putting the blame squarely on Pharaoh here. That he is the one that is responsible for restraining God's people from being able to serve him and to worship him freely. God is calling to light the wickedness and the evil intention of Pharaoh's heart. And this justifies the severity of this plague. God's saying, look, if you continue with your evil intentions to prevent my people from freely worshiping me, then I will bring a severe plague and a heavy hand down on you and all your livestock will die. Now there's some irony here in Moses using that phrase, the hand of the Lord. You see, the Egyptians would often, when they would conquer somebody, they would often say it was the hand of Pharaoh that did this to you. And so now here God is saying, okay, let me show you a real heavy hand. Let's see who, whose hand is heavier. And the Hebrew word translated in verse 2 as very severe, it's interesting. It's the same word translated to describe the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. And so perhaps God is saying, I'm going to send a plague that is as hard as your heart. And this, may, this plague may have also well been a, a, another strike against or attack against the gods of Egypt. We know, for instance, that bull cults were a very popular thing in Egypt throughout most of the ancient world. They, they viewed the bulls as a fertility figure. The bulls and other animals were sometimes the embodiment of certain gods in Egypt. God, again, he's showing his sovereignty over these puny man-made gods. And so all of their livestock, the domesticated animals on which they depended for milk and for food and for clothing, for labor, transportation, they all got sick and died. Theologian John Davis explains, he says this, he says, such a plague would have had grave economic consequences in the land of Egypt. Oxen were depended 
upon for heavy labor in agriculture. Camels and donkeys, horses were used large, largely for transportation. Cattle not only provided milk, but were very much an integral part of worship in the land of Egypt. The economic losses on this occasion must have been affected, affected Pharaoh greatly because he kept large number, numbers of cattle under his control. Again, we're seeing these plagues get worse and worse in their severity. Not only was the fifth plague the first bringing death, but it was also the, one, the first one to destroy Pharaoh's personal property. The plague of the gnats was attributed merely to the finger of God. This is attributed to the, the heavy hand of the Lord. In verse 4, we see God continuing to protect the Israelites, though. This is a theme we talked about last week. It started last week, and we talked about it at length, but Moses really is highlighting this again in this plague. Not only does God protect the Israelites, he even protects their livestock. And Moses mentions it twice here. And then he mentions that Pharaoh even sent his servants to observe and report back what they saw in Goshen, where the Israelites were staying. And they, of course, confirmed that what Moses had said came true. God was indeed protecting his own people. Now, I should mention that God does not always protect his chosen people, right? Okay, you think about Joseph. Well, he was set aside. He, he was uh, made distinct from his other brothers, but that didn't spare Joseph from trials, right? Uh, but you think about it, Joseph looked back even on his trials, and he was able to say that, okay, his, the evil actions of his brothers selling him into slavery, God used those for good. Think about the Apostle Paul. He was set apart as an apostle for Christ, but that didn't spare him from trials or even imprisonment. But again, Paul was able to look at his trials simply as a new opportunity that God gave him to share the gospel with the prison guards and even the emperor of Rome. I want you to notice in verse 5 how Moses predicts the timing of this plague. These little details are significant because God is leaving no doubt that these miracles are not simply some kind of natural phenomenon, but they truly are an act of God. Now, it's no surprise that even after his own servants went and saw that the, that Goshen was not being affected by this plague and that what Moses had predicted came true, Pharaoh still doesn't repent. His heart is hard. He has mercifully been given numerous opportunities to repent and to obey, but he refuses. And so God continues to turn up the heat. Let's look, take a look at the next plague. Pick up with me in verse 8. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. And it shall become like fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. And so they took soot from the kiln and they stood before Pharaoh and Moses threw it into the air and it became boils breaking out into sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But, listen clear, carefully to this, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. And he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. And so this is the third plague of the second triad. And so that means there's no warning this time. There's no warning given to Pharaoh about this plague. I think there's some irony in that God has Moses take the soot from a kiln. 
This is probably one of the kilns that were, was used to make bricks by the Israelites as they were slaves. And once again, we see dust appearing, right? Covering the earth, showing you how, how vast this plague is, is spreading. Dust is over all the land, turns into this boils. Boils break out on everyone, and even the, on the beasts, every person in Egypt. And so now the magicians are in so much pain, they cannot stand before Moses. But not even the boils, not even watching his trusted music, magicians writhing in pain was enough for Pharaoh to listen to Moses. Why? The text says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And this is what I want us to wrestle with today. I, I think this is significant. There, there's several books out there that talk about like the hard sayings of the Bible or the difficult things to understand in the Bible. I'm pretty sure this is probably on the top five in all of those books. Okay, when God, What does it mean that God hardened Pharaoh's heart? What does it even mean to have a hard heart? Does God still actively harden the hearts of people? And if so, why? What about believers? Can a believer... Can their heart be hardened? And so let's start by just clarifying what it is to have a hard heart. And so I want to do that by just taking a look at Scripture. And so what I did was I just went into my Bible program and I, I did a quick search of hard hearts and hardened hearts and just did a quick survey. And so this is what I found. You can do this at home if you wanted to. Of course, here in Exodus, what do we see? We see a hardened heart is one that refuses to listen and obey God, even when it's given clear reasons to, and warnings to listen and to obey. Uh, in Deuteronomy, the king of Heshan's heart is hardened by the Lord. And the text says it's made obstinate. And so obstinate means stubbornly refusing to change one's opinion or chosen course of action despite attempts to persuade one to do so. Later on in Deuteronomy, to shut your hand against your brother or to fail to be generous is to have a hard heart. In Second Chronicles, a hard heart is synonymous with having a stiff neck or, or not being willing to turn towards the Lord. Psalm 95 recalls the hard hearts of the Israelites in the wilderness when they failed to trust God's provision. Proverbs describes a hard heart as one who fails to fear the Lord. Daniel describes the hard heart as, uh, he's talking about the king, and he says that it's filled with Pride, his heart is filled with pride and hardened. You go to the New Testament and the Gospels describe a hard heart as one that lacks understanding and does not believe. Romans equates a hard heart with being impenitent. In other words, a heart that feels no shame. Paul, again, in Ephesians, describes the hard heart of Gentile unbelievers as darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in their heart. He goes on to say that they have become callous and given themselves up to sensuality and greedy to practice every kind of impurity. The author of Hebrews describes a hardened heart simply as rebellious. And so what does it mean that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart? Does it mean that God is like malicious and, okay, Pharaoh used to be a fairly good guy, but then God came in and gave him this evil, rebellious heart that is against God, that won't ever uh, look towards God and, and trust in God. I don't think that that fits with the rest of what we read in Scripture and the character of God. 
And I want us to take a look back through the account of the plagues, and I want us to see if we can't better understand what's going on when uh, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Okay, so turn back with me to chapter 7 and look at verse 13. So this is after, this is before the plagues actually started. This is uh, right after that first sign, that first encounter between Pharaoh and Moses. This is when God's staff turns into a snake and swallows up the, the staffs of the magicians. And we read this in verse 13. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And so it's kind of ambiguous there. It doesn't say who is hardening his heart. Then after the very first plague, the water, when the water was turned into blood, chapter 7, verse 22, we see this. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts, and so Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And so it seems like he was influenced by his magicians, but again, it was kind of ambiguous on who is hardening his heart. Now, after the second plague, though, the frogs, Pharaoh hardens his own heart, it says, verse 15, chapter 8. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, and so God's uh, plague is kind of relaxed for a moment, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. After the third plague, the gnats and the magicians are, are no longer able to replicate the plague. Chapter 8, verse 19, then the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And again, this is kind of ambiguous. After the fourth plague, the flies. Again, we see Pharaoh hardening his own heart. Chapter 8, verse 32. But Pharaoh hardened his heart, this time also, and did not let the people go. And I think that word also implies that the previous plague, or maybe the previous plagues, it was Pharaoh hardening his own heart. After the fifth plague, the death of the Egyptian livestock. Chapter 9, verse 7. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. And again, so it's ambiguous there. And so up to this point, we've seen sometimes Pharaoh hardens his own heart, and sometimes it's just kind of ambiguous. We, we don't know who's hardening his own heart. But after the sixth plague, which we read today, Moses leaves no doubt that it's God who is hardening Pharaoh's heart. Chapter 9, verse 12 again. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. And from here on out, with the exception of the seventh plague, Moses makes it clear that it's the Lord that is hardening Pharaoh's heart. After the eighth plague, this is Locust, chapter 10, verse 20, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. After the ninth plague, again, darkness happens, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. And then finally, in chapter 14, this is after Pharaoh has finally let them go, God says to Moses, and I will harden the Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and will get, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, and they did so. All right, so this is what I'm seeing here. I know that took a, a minute <laughs> to go through all that. This is what I'm seeing here, though, that it is, it's not that God is like this malicious God who is turning a good guy into an evil guy to punish him, Okay. No, Pharaoh hardened his own heart first, and then at some point there was a just hardening, a, a judicial hardening by, by God. I've heard it said like this, is, is that God was essentially just 
lengthening the leash that Pharaoh was on to allow him just to continue to follow the evil intentions of his own heart. That's what God was doing. His heart was already hard, but God is simply allowing, giving him over to his own hard heart. And I think this is what we're seeing basically in Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, this is Paul talking about those who are unrighteous. And he says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him with as God, or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. And so he's saying these Gentiles and the, these unrighteous, they're, they're running after other gods. And so therefore, verse 24, God gave them up to their lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped the, and served the, create, the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And so this is what I see what's happening. In, in Romans 1 and also in the heart of Pharaoh, we see God hardening the hearts only after they had already hardened their own hearts. And so let me... Let me uh, give you a little bit of bad news or remind us of the bad news first before I get to the good news. And so what we see in Romans chapter 1 through 3 is that all of us have hard hearts. All of us have hard hearts. In Romans 5, Paul explains that we have all been infected by the sin of Adam. The, the fall corrupted our hearts. In Ephesians, we see that all of us are, were dead in our, our sins and, and children of wrath. We, we all deserve the judgments handed out to Pharaoh. In fact, what we see with Pharaoh is what happens if, if God would just let the evil intentions of our hearts go, this is the directions we would all go in, unless God has mercy on us. But here's the good news. The good news is that God is in the business of giving new hearts to people. That's the the promise that we have in the new covenant. The, and, and the good news is this. There is never, there's no heart that can be so hardened that God can't soften it. That is good news. And it also means that if you're in Christ, the promise is that you actually have a new heart. You already have a new heart. He's put his spirit into you. That's the promise we have in the new covenant, Ezekiel 36, 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And so this new heart is what causes us to be able to believe and to be able to obey. This means God will never judicially harden your heart to the point that there is no return. If you're a believer, he will never harden your heart to the point where there's no return. Your heart may turn icy at times, but the good thing about ice is it can be melted, right? He will never turn it into a clay pot that that can't ever be softened. This is what we see throughout the Old Testament, especially with the Israelites, God's chosen people. What happens to them? There's this cycle where the Israelites will harden their hearts And they'll be complaining about God's provision. They'll be running away to other gods. We're going to see that in Exodus. But what does God do with them? He pursues them. He pursues them. Yes, at times, lovingly 
disciplining them, right? But he also reminds them of his faithfulness and a future that is bright. And over time, often their hearts would soften. And if we're honest, if I'm honest, this is the same pattern I see in my own life. We like to think of sanctification as like this this straight line that's ascending. But if we're honest, our growth in Christ, our sanctification, there's a cycle to it, right? There's a, it's not a straight line at all. I wish it was. But there's a cycle where there are seasons that we all go through where our hearts get icy, get cold towards the Lord. But the good news is that if you're His, Listen to me carefully here. God is not repelled by your, your icy heart. In fact, it, in Scripture, it seems that he's actually attracted to it because he, he pours out his compassion on you. If you, if you belong to him, yeah, you got to understand, he is a holy God. He hates your sin more than you, more than you know. But he loves you more than you could ever imagine. And so he looks at your sin kind of like a, a father looks at a disease that, 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 that his child has that's making him just miserable. And he has pity on you during those seasons. Listen, Mercy Hill, those seasons where you feel cold to God, where, where you feel calloused towards the Lord, know this, the Lord has not abandoned you. He's not repelled by you. In fact, he is still lovingly pursuing you and seeking to melt that ice in your heart and soften it. Yes, sometimes he's going to do that through trials, through difficult times. He's lovingly disciplining us during those seasons. But I want you to understand this too. That's not the only way that he softens people's hearts. You being here right now is one of the ways in which God softens our hearts and recalibrates our hearts back towards him. Our church family is such a gift given to us. I mean, you guys singing the gospel to me again this morning. I need that. I need to know about the sweetness of God's grace. I need to be reminded of that often. And so we need one another to come together, to remind one another. When we come together, we, we remind one another about Jesus and his sacrificial love and his sacrificial grace towards us. We read in Hebrews chapter 3, 13, but exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sins. We need one another to do that, to encourage one another. Later on in Hebrews, we read, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So listen, you just being here, that's God working. Maybe you came in here and you, you know you've been struggling with a hard heart. You know your heart's been cold and callous, and it, you, like, it's just hard for you to even pay attention during this time. But let me encourage you, you just being here 
surrounded by other believers, hearing the gospel, singing the gospel, seeing the gospel being played out in the communion. That is God working in your heart. Those are means by which God works in your heart to soften it. Let me, let me leave you with one final exhortation. I believe that one of God's primary means of softening hearts is through the body of Christ when we confess sins to one another. We don't talk about this nearly enough because I know it's very uncomfortable, okay? And, and I want you to understand, I'm not talking about confessing sins that we've already dealt with, that we've already kind of conquered. I'm talking about confessing those sins that you're struggling, struggling with in this moment, right now. The things that are embarrassing, the things that are just hard and difficult that keep you up at night. And I know that sounds really scary, but listen, confessing sin is an opportunity for us to rejoice in the gospel. It's an opportunity for your brothers and sisters in Christ to remind you that God has forgiven you in Christ. You don't have to wallow in defeat. Instead, you can lay those burdens at the cross where it's already been been paid for. It's the kindness of the Lord that leads to repentance. And so when we confess our sins to one another, it's an opportunity for you to experience that kindness firsthand. It's an opportunity for for us to share grace with one another because we have been given so much grace. The church truly is the soil in which Christ grows us. And so I I can't encourage you enough, invest in relationships. If you're not plugged into an MC, get plugged into an MC. Because we all know that rows, I mean, this is good, but when we get into a circle and we we share prayer requests, and not just sharing prayer requests about, this is what we often do, right? We, we, We go around prayer requests and we, hey, pray for this person, pray for that person. Let's get around the circle. Let's say, pray for me. Pray for, I need, I need help in this. I'm struggling with this. Pray for me. And that's my challenge for you today. Build those relationships so that you tr- you've got somebody that you trust enough that you can share your deepest, darkest struggle. Because there is so much power in confession. This is one of the best means that God has given us to, to soften our hearts as we are honest and truthful. And I'll tell you what, you do that in an MC. This is what you're going to see. You're going to see a domino effect because as soon as one person is willing to put themselves out there and be a little bit vulnerable, everybody else starts realizing, you know what, I can do that too. So let me encourage you. Get plugged into an MC if you're not and work on those relationships. And I know it's hard. I know it's challenging. There are all sorts of things that Satan tries to put in our way to to prevent us from uh, having those types of vulnerable relationships, but it is so worth the effort. Lean into your church family. Let's pray that God would help us to do that. Father, thank you so much for your word and for reminding us over and over and over that you are in the business of giving us new hearts, soft hearts. And even though we have the tendency to to get icy with you and, and, and we will harden our hearts. We know and we believe and help our hearts to believe that you are constantly pursuing us, having compassion on us and pity on us and 
You love us more than we could ever imagine. Help us believe that, Lord. Help us sing about that. Help us see that in communion. Help us teach that and remind one another of that truth so that our hearts would rejoice and be filled with gratitude and filled with love and forgiveness and grace towards others. And I pray that our hearts would be so filled that we couldn't help but talk about you with others. And so for those of us in this room right now that are really struggling with a hard heart towards you, by your spirit, would you soften us? Would you help give us the, the courage to share our struggles with one another so that we could feel your kindness and your grace and help us have wisdom to, to when, when others confess to us, help us have wisdom to point them to you and your forgiveness and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we move into a time of communion, let's continue to, to see the gospel played out as we drink the juice and are reminded of the, the blood that is shed for us for the forgiveness of sins as we take the bread and it represents Christ's body given to us. He gave himself to us. Let's meditate on that. Let's confess our sins to the Lord. If you need to confess to, to somebody else, I would be more than willing to listen to you and pray with you. I'll be in the back. If you have questions about salvation or about anything else, about membership, about baptism, please don't leave here today until you get those questions answered. If you need, if you really want to get plugged into an MC, but you don't even know where to start, come see me, talk to Perry.